Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. I'm Elliot Malamud, and you're listening to the latest episode of What Would You Do? a monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. When people think about freedom, they usually associate it with the right to do what we want, as long as we don't harm others. But in the school of thought known as libertarianism, a major focus of concern are the institutions that could potentially constrain our ability to do what we want. And at the top of the list of these institutions is the state itself. Libertarians of various leanings argue about exactly how much state involvement or non-involvement is optimal. But they all agree that for freedom to flourish, we should promote as minimal amount of government interference as possible. But what if there are people in the society who, for whatever reason, cannot really take advantage of their freedom, and in fact need a good deal of outside help, including from the government? Ayn Rand once wrote that civilization is the process of setting man free from men, which is a lovely sentiment, but is it sufficient? What if liberty isn't really enough? There are lots of people out there who may be normatively free from the interference of others, but frankly, they do not seem to be able to make it on their own. And in fact, many Western countries kind of embrace this problem and promoted government interventions manifested as promoting certain kinds of social goods, education, health care, old age pensions, that might enhance our happiness. And in more desperate situations, People might need other kinds of help, financial help, help with their food and housing security, and so on. Maybe this is another way of saying that not everyone knows what to do with their liberty. Then they may make bad life decisions and find themselves in need of assistance. I sat down to talk about these matters with Jason Kuznicki, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C. Jason is the editor of Cato Books and a Free Society a quarterly journal of opinion that will launch in March 2022. His book, Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For?, surveys Western political theory from a libertarian perspective. Jason earned a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins University in 2005. Jason and I discussed how libertarians think about the relationship between individuals and the state, and our conversation veered into some of the essential contemporary arguments about liberty versus some kind of regulation or government intervention, including the cultural war that has found a flashpoint in the COVID-19 pandemic. I began by asking Jason to comment on the government promoting a kind of positive liberty by helping citizens in crucial areas. Did he think that at the same time as we might liberate certain people from government interference, that we might also end up abandoning others? Do I think liberty is enough? No. I think that what we need is not just the liberty to act without government interference. 
I think that civil society is important. I think that the institutions of the private market and of private non-market activity are absolutely crucial. I think that things like churches and community organizations do great work. I am not convinced that we must always use the state to provide for the poor. I think that uh, private provision is is excellent and that, in fact, private charity is currently contributing a great deal to alleviate poverty. Whether we must go to government or not to provide a welfare state, obviously that's a question that the industrialized world has generally answered, yes, we do. I, I don't think that the reach for government is always justified, and I would like to explore ways that we can provide more effectively without it. I do believe that that's possible. Is liberty enough? No, absolutely not. That produces a, a vision of human life that is kind of empty. Now, what, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to be an engineer or a musician or a writer or uh, a fast food worker or, or whatever? That's, you know, that's unanswered. And obviously, obviously we, we don't leave those questions unanswered in real life. We go out and do something. So let me just pick up on, on what you're saying. You're, you're sort of talking about different ways that people could get assistance from others. And it sounds to me like you are happy about the notion of private organizations or institutions helping people out, whether it be faith-based institutions or other institutions. You said you seem to imply that sometimes the, the quote, reach for government is, seems ill-advised. Can, can you give me examples of where you think government should not be involved and, and why you think that? I, I think that the government has no business whatsoever telling adults what they may or may not put into their bodies medically. I think that the ability to take medical advice from a doctor and to care for oneself is not something that should be regulated in the way that we do now. If my doctor believes that cannabis is medicine and should be prescribed, I should be allowed to do that. In a lot of U.S. states, obviously, that is that is the case. But for many, many years, it was not. So, yes, I would I would say that there are a lot of areas that clearly government intervention has has been worse than the problem that it sought to alleviate. We have a, a serious opioid overdose problem in this country. And the entire reason that we have that problem is that the trade in opiates is fully illegal. If it were legal, this problem would not be happening because users would be able to obtain doses of their preferred substances without the uncertainty that, that the uh, black market has been creating. Now, if someone sells you a, a package of heroin that's laced with fentanyl and doesn't tell you about it, there is no recourse for that. You just end up dying in a lot of cases. But if someone sold you that product in a an open and legal market, then the addition of a dangerous substance would be adulteration. It would be kind of commercial fraud. And they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to do that for very long without being punished by the legal system, which is exactly what would happen if someone put fentanyl in Coca-Cola. We ought to approach the problem that way and bring the market into the legally protected realm 
the one where there are consequences for misbehavior, therefore. So I, I, by the way, I'm completely sympathetic to the notion of, you know, you should be allowed to take the cannabis you want and so on. So let's take the opioid example, which is an interesting one, and I hadn't thought about it before. So let's say you had a regular opiate market, just like, you know, selling shoes. The problem there is that it just seems a bit ironic to me because let's say you did have a dealer who fraudulently injected certain things into the opioids that they shouldn't. Wouldn't the recourse then obviously then regress back to the state? In other words, you are asking the state to get involved by regulating these people. I'm not an anarchist. I I do believe that there is a role for the state in preventing fraud, in ensuring that when a commercial transaction happens, it's not talked about falsely. Products aren't mar- marketed under false pretenses. Yeah, I, I think that there is a role for the government there. I am open to ideas about private regulation, and I think some of them are very interesting. But at the moment, we don't have any sort of regulation other than prohibition in this market. And prohibition brings with it its own uh, very severe disadvantages. People are dying because of it. So it sounds like you would prefer to sort of bet on the individual knowing what is good for them, what's right for them, without the state deciding kind of almost paternalistically, we know better than you what is good for you. Would you say in a sense that you might call libertarian psychology sort of optimistic then, that if we leave people alone, that'll promote human flourishing as opposed to views that might state that human beings are not really self-sustaining in many ways and can't can't really be left on their own? Yes. There's uh, a book about this, actually. It's called Leave Me Alone, and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. It's by uh, Art Carden and uh, Deirdre McCloskey. The deal is that rather than a king or another form of centralized government licensing a guild and the guild gets to tell its members what types of bread they're allowed to bake and what types they're not allowed to bake and how many loaves they're allowed to make per day and and what penalties there are for, for selling too many and yeah, all of that, all of that is what's been holding us back. And when you leave people alone to innovate and come up with new products and to offer them for sale, they end up doing much better than they would have otherwise. We often approach questions of commercial regulation, fighting last battle, as it were. We, we want to prevent whatever thing that happened in the past, and we want to impose a kind of stasis on the market. Another one of my favorite books that speaks to this question is by Virginia Pastrell. It's called The Future and Its Enemies. And the argument of that book is very much that when people have the freedom to innovate and to to experiment, they will succeed at coming up with new ideas that satisfy consumer demands sometimes before the very existence of the demand was even appreciated. So, yes, it's it's absolutely the case that at least the libertarianism that I stand for is an optimistic. I mean, look, Jason, I'm neither a Calvinist nor a communist, but I, I do believe, I do, I do have a sense sometimes that there is a, a sort of darkness to human beings that can manifest in ways that we exploit one another. I, I'm just, when I hear you talk, I, part of me, likes it. And the other part of me is quite concerned. Like, 
really, you know, like Wall Street and bankers and everybody just left on their own will will just merely produce good. You say that like it's a bad thing. I say it like it's an ambiguous thing. In other words, I don't think that I, I'm not I, I think that capitalism can promote good everywhere by creating markets that can enrich people's lives. And I think that's probably the best way out of poverty that I know. So I certainly would affirm that. But I also feel that there's sufficient greed that human nature promotes. And I, I don't know that, you know, that's necessarily the fault of capitalism. I think that's a human nature thing, which is why I always felt the Marxists were wrong. But if they are wrong and human nature does tend to a certain kind of self-interest, I'm not sure that just leaving it in everybody's hands without somebody overseeing them is always the best idea. In other words, I guess I'm asking you, isn't there a kind of compromise between sort of pure greed and or Orwellian oversight? Like, how do we how do we strike a kind of balance? I would say that greed is a constant. And whether it's you or me or a CEO or politician, we're all greedy. We all want what we want, and we all want to have lots of nice stuff, and we all want to have attractive partners and romance, and we all want to have, we all, we all have wants. And the question is, how can we satisfy those wants without exploiting other human beings, without making them into pawns, or, or without, as I might say, without using them merely as a means to our end? And one of the one of the crucial things to get right in preventing that is the concentration of political power. So consider the example of Leopold II, who was king of the Belgians in the uh, late 19th century. And when he's in Belgium, he's a constitutional monarch and he's grumbling about it because there's a parliament and there's all kinds of restrictions on his power and he has to play by rules. But when he is overseeing his colony in the Congo Free State, he is an absolute monarch. There are no political institutions to check his power. And he rules very differently. He rules through brutal exploitation. He rules through kidnapping people to hold them hostages, to make their families and their villages work in this grueling and appallingly cruel rubber trade that he has going there. And he gets super rich from it. So I'm I'm not going to say that greed is good. Greed can be made to do good, but we've got to get the institutional designs right. When we make it so that your impulse toward greed puts you to work for other people, then you're satisfying your greed to some degree, but also satisfying the needs of other people. And that's wonderful. That's what we ought to do. When it's your greed being satisfied by using other human beings and destroying their lives for your sake, something's wrong there. So we need to watch both business and government, I would say, for those types of exploitation. But most often we need to watch government because it is it is the power of physical force that allows uh, someone like Leopold II to get away with what he got away with. And... Had there been countervailing institutions of political power that meaningfully checked him, it would have been much more difficult. That's the case whether you're you're in the public sphere or the private, I would say. Do you like the checks of power that currently exist in the American system? Do you feel that there are too many Leopolds there, or do you feel that there's sufficient oversight? People on the left like to say that every billionaire is a policy failure, and I definitely don't like to say that. 
I don't know whether billionaires are, are policy failures or not. I, I would personally, if I could arrange it somehow, I'd like to make everyone a billionaire in real terms, not, not by printing tons of money. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to make everyone a, an inflation based billionaire. I would like everyone to have that type of wealth if it were at all possible in, in real terms. So how do we get there? How do we, how do we do that? And the answer, I think, I think lies with two things. First, technological progress. And second, the ability of capital to flow freely toward projects that actually do benefit people. How do we know if a business is benefiting people? Is it selling products that are bettering people's lives or not? And that's ultimately a question that consumers have to decide. We've, we've been the ones to make Jeff Bezos rich, as far as I can tell, not, not the government, not some special privilege that he got. He seems like a, a pretty decent billionaire, if I had to say so. Yeah. Are there examples of, of the other kind? Uh, maybe. Yeah. They exist too, but it's very difficult to say which specific living human being would be wealthy or not under a social system that, that might end up being quite different from ours. I would like to do a lot of deregulation in markets. Yes. Recreational drugs, but also, also straight up healthcare. Or intellectual property. I think the intellectual property laws in the United States especially are uh, overly protective, and I would greatly, greatly shorten the terms on copyrights and patents myself. If it, if it were you know, up to me to make those calls, I would do so. And I think the net effect of that would probably be a decrease in the con- concentration of wealth and an increase in wealth overall. I think it would work out to enrich more people than it impoverished, and it would probably only take away from the relatively wealthy. Can we talk about maybe the swath of society that maybe is a little bit left out of that equation? You know, I'm just thinking of, you know, E.M. Forster and Howard Zen, I, ironically saying, you know, the very poor, they're unthinkable. And I'm wondering if people who are either through dint of a lot of circumstances, whether it's genetics or temperament or upbringing or, or where they grew up or, or drugs or whatever it is, are in a bad situation from the start, from the get-go. They seem behind the eight ball, both in terms of intellectual ability, education, ability to progress through the system, and so on. And they, they are, they're kind of left out of the picture. And that, that's just, it's not a value judgment, it's a fact. So the question is, from your point of view, what will we do with such people? It's nice to say, you know, let them get technologically upgraded, but we both sort of know that in certain cases, that's really not going to happen. So do we just sort of muck along and say, well, that minimum wage job that they're going to take at best is still better than they would be doing, say, 400 years ago, which is probably true, but it's probably not comfort for them. How, how, how do you think about this whole sort of section of society? I don't know how to make literally everyone not poor at the same time. I do know that the operation of markets throughout the world has tended to greatly reduce the number of people living in extreme poverty. You can find this information on Our World in Data. It's a very well-known comparative data website about the entire world. And when you look at the share of the world's population living in extreme poverty, it has, it has fallen a great deal over the 
last several decades and indeed over the last two centuries. In 1800, about 85% of the world was living on less than $2 a day. And nowadays, it's closer to 10%. That is an enormous drop in ex extreme poverty. How do we reach that last 10% of, of the world? It's partly a policy question. And I think that's the largest part of it. It is not about their personal qualities, about their intelligence or their training or, or what have you. It's about the fact that they live under governments that are extractive. They live under governments that are not serving their own best interests. They are not providing them with the kinds of legal and property protections that would allow them to keep what they earn and therefore give them any incentive to do better. There is there is no reason to start a business in a lot of places in the world. Why, why would you do that in a place like Venezuela when your success is going to mark you as a target? I'm thinking about something you said before. I know you talked about cannabis, but I, I couldn't help but be struck by the phrase you used, which is the government telling me what I should put into my body. And, you know, the, the great sort of one of the great moral questions today, obviously, has to do with the ethics of the what I call pandethics, right? Pandemic ethics. So, Jason, I'm, I'm really intrigued by how libertarians would respond to certain fundamental moral arguments that have sort of intensified in the wake of COVID-19. The idea of being made to do certain things, which you've alluded to before, such as wear a mask or be mandated to receive a vaccine, would certainly seem to fly in the face of pure autonomy. And I'm obviously reminded, and I'm sure you are as well, of these questions emerging in Mills on Liberty and the whole question of what became known as the harm principle. And just to clarify for listeners what the harm principle is, so the 19th century British thinker John Stuart Mill argued in his words that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over a member of a civilized community against as well as to prevent harm to others. So his own good, either physical or emotional, is not a sufficient warrant. He cannot rightfully be compelled to do or forbear because it'll be better for him to do so or because it'll make him happier, because in the opinion of others, to do so would be wise or even right. And that's really fascinating because Mill right there is just absolutely rejecting paternalism he sounds like he could work for Cato right in that sentence. Like, don't tell people that you know what's better for them than they know for themselves. So, you know, he concludes by saying, look, the only part of the conduct of anybody which you basically are responsible to society is if what concerns other people. Like, he has complete control over himself, but if he does harm to others, that's where we can sort of cut him off at the past. So I get the idea, do what you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Otherwise, leave me alone. I'm not bothering anyone. And I agree. Like, you know, whatever you're into, I'll leave you alone. The issue with vaccines and masks, and it's a tricky one, is whether I'm harming just myself, in which case we might say, you know, that person has the right to say, lay off, it's my life. Or if, in fact, we're harming society by creating the grounds for spreading infection, for example. So I, I'm interested how you think about this whole cluster of issues. I have been approaching the pandemic as a question of, of primarily personal responsibility. You'll find other libertarians, perhaps, with, with other answers. But it's it's always been absolutely obvious to me that infecting someone with a virus is doing a harm to them. I don't understand how it could fail to be harm. It obviously is. 
So I should try to avoid doing that. I have an obligation to refrain from harming people. And for a lot of the pandemic, what that meant for me is staying away from people. It's meant social distancing. It's meant working from home. It's uh, meant wearing a mask when I have to go out for necessities like food. Now I'm a bit more relaxed about that. You can see I'm in my office. I'm not wearing a mask, but that's because I've been vaccinated. And I, I think that uh, collectively, there seems to be a sense among pretty much all reasonable people that this pandemic is worth taking extra precautions for. I, I'm, I'm with the great majority of people on that. But I think that the locus of decision making still should be with the individual. This is something we should decide for ourselves on an individual basis, because there really are people who either... Uh, don't benefit from vaccines or who have difficulty wearing masks or or who might need to make some kind of very important exception to social distancing for an event or a, a, a moment in life that is just that important to them. And I'm not going to second guess them. I'm going to work very hard to protect myself and those who are around me and I'm going to uh, assume that they are doing the same because that's what any reasonable human would do in that position. It's it's interesting what you're saying. It sounds you know excessively reasonable what you just said. I but it really, <laughs> it really it really but it really does take us back to the human nature discussion we were having previously. I would say I am skeptical that everybody has that sense of social responsibility when I see pictures of people screaming at airline attendants because they're being asked to wear a mask on an airplane. To me, that's paradigmatic of not an insubstantial slice of the population that doesn't, they're not thinking about social responsibility. And all of the examples you gave are well taken. In other words, if you're, if you're allergic to it, if you, if you have trouble wearing the mask, whatever it is, I get the exceptions. And I don't think most people would argue about the exceptions. I think that what people on a certain end of the spectrum would be upset about is the idea that people value their freedom or what they perceive as their right to not be infringed upon, even above everything else. And actually, Jason, it's that moment that they think is special, where, you know, the wedding or whatever it is, that's the moment I worry about the most, because that's the one where they can rationalize to themselves the most. This is where I can break the exception on masks. So I always saw external monitoring as the necessary evil, and it is an evil, the necessary evil when people don't exhibit the kind of wise decision-making that I would want. And I just don't have that faith in many people, in certain people that they would. There are penalties besides uh, a government fining you. There are penalties like the airline following its own policies says, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to get on the plane. And if an airline decides to do that, that's a penalty to you. And that is a penalty which sends a signal. It says, I don't find your behavior to be sufficiently sociable to be on this plane with the other travelers. And that ought to give you pause. That ought to make you think, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm not doing a good thing here if you are, are refusing to wear a mask. That's how how social signals work. And the fact that we've been having this entire conversation in the context of 
of government bans puts everybody on the defensive and it makes those signals not work nearly as well, in my view, as they ought to. I, I think that a lot of the backlash is precisely because this is a government imposition and not because it's something the value of which we've internally appreciated. You know, Jason, if you and I were on the plane, let's say we're on this in the same row, right? You're at the window, I'm the aisle, and the non-masked enraged person is in the middle. So your point of view would be the flight attendant will come, they'll sort of mark the fact that the person didn't wear the mask the whole flight, and then they'll get fined or possibly even put in custody when they land. So I'm talking about like the plane has already taken off. That's not my view. I, right? I, I, I would not agree that the appropriate time to take action is after they've already boarded. I would, I, I would say they should not be allowed to board right, if they I are not going you. to comply with the policies of the airline. The, the way to resolve a question like this is to ask who the property owner is. The airline owns the plane. I am their guest. And they are allowed to kick me off if I'm, if I'm being out of compliance with their rules. Obviously, that's not going to happen in the air, but it will happen before I board or it should. No, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. But I'm thinking about a situation where here's my end game here. We're on the plane. Person has a mask on. Then like, you know, half hour in, and we're on a transatlantic flight, you know, so we're not sort of bailing out across the water. Takes off the mask, refuses to put it back on. So, you know, we can end up with the consequences that you elucidated, and I'd be in favor, right? As soon as we land in London or Paris or Tel Aviv, off the person goes and they get arrested or they, they get put in custody, they get fined. But I've had to spend six, eight, 11 hours with that person. Now, my view would have been, I'm not letting you on the plane unless I see proof of vaccination. Your view would have been, that's an imposition. We'll work on the back end. We'll work on the back end. We'll, we'll make everybody wear a mask. We won't ask them for proof. And then afterwards, we'll assess consequences. Is that, am I, is that, in, is that wrong? In my view, if the airline wanted to say you must be vaccinated to fly, they're allowed to do that. That's fine. I, I have no no objection to that at all. No, but you're making it optional, and I feel like it's irresponsible to have it as an option. I, I disagree that I'm making it optional. You, no, in other words, you're making it optional for the airline to set that policy. I, I think just about all of them would choose some kind of of COVID protective policy, and the specific details of that are are. are yeah, they've been known to change, and I'm okay with that. But I don't see that airlines would find it in their best interest to have the reputation of of being hotbeds of of COVID infection. They they would look to their own interests, and that would guide them to not sickening their customers. Right, I hear you. So you really do have a very kind of consistent ethos that you feel that ultimately people will do what is good for their interest. And if their interest is that their reputation would be damaged by sending out signals that they're not really, really fastidious about people's health, that they'll take the appropriate actions that way. So there's a tremendous confidence that the market will kind of correct itself in the area of doing what needs to be done to maintain a reputation at all costs. 
I, I wouldn't call it a tremendous confidence. I, I, I think that this is a uh, actually a, a pretty easy issue. This is an issue where we all know what's going on. This is an issue where it's not exactly a secret. It's one where some of the compliance measures, at least, are are verifiable matters of public record. You can you can see whether I've been vaccinated or not. You can you can take my vaccination card and and look up the number on it and see that it's authentic, if you like. This is, I think, a, a, a comparatively easy case. Also, we should not expect that either a private regime or a a governmental one is going to produce perfect compliance. There are COVID restrictions in place that have been set up by governments that are being widely flouted, that people are just ignoring them. So that's that's a problem in any system. The question then becomes what do the consequences look like under under various systems? And I, I would think that one that is somewhat less punitive and that relies on social reputation more than on uh, fines or ultimately imprisonment is is the preferable one. Thank you. I wanted to ask you just to change directions for a moment about a kind of growing phenomenon in recent times. And I'm interested in this issue, not because I'm so interested in the particulars, but because of the sort of philosophical dilemma it represents. And that's the whole idea of wokeness and cancel culture. Because I, I am thinking here about the question of how we navigate the tension between the right to free expression and yet, I guess, trying to be alert to the potential harm that might be caused by such expression. Like, how do we balance off freedom with people's feelings that their identity might be under attack, for instance. How how would you think about this? I would say that freedom of expression protects people who have either minority or stigmatized identities. It is better rather than worse that people who are LGBT, like like I am, can find accurate health information. We can socialize with one another in freedom. We can uh, explore identities and figure out who we are, and that's great. What I have observed is that when you set up a censorship mechanism of any kind, it does not necessarily stay in the hands of the designer. So if I were to set up a censorship mechanism, I'd probably want to protect my own kind. I'd probably want to to make hate speech a crime and make saying bad things about gay people a crime. But I don't actually want to do that because I've observed that if I were to do that, that censorship board would stay around. It wouldn't always be run by me. It would come to be run by, well, it would come to be run by people who like to censor things because that's who tends to, to gravitate to an institution like that. And uh, censorious people are not the types of people you want to give power. A censorship regime tends to over-include, even by the standards of whoever set it up. It's a very dangerous weapon, and it ought not to be left lying around. Yeah, no, that definitely resonates with me. Do you have in your mind lines for speech where you feel, no, that one just crossed a line? No, or, I don't. No, you don't? No, I, I do not. I, I believe that if someone is making a threat... That is a different matter. If you're looking for a line, that's one of them making threats. Not okay. But if someone wants to call me an idiot, it's it's happened several times already today. So that's something that I, I uh, try not to worry about too much. It's, it's part of public life. 
What about speech that's sort of, it's sort of teased out there, but non-specific, like somebody in public life saying something kind of vaguely or generally homophobic, like it'd be, it'd be better if we didn't have so many gays in this country, right? Not threat exactly, but not exactly warm and fuzzy. What do you think of that kind of speech, these kinds of vague floaters that get sent out a lot. The people who do that, they mark themselves as being a certain kind of person, and decent people know now to avoid them. I would rather hear that kind of remark than have it kept bottled up for many years, and then finally they kill me. Let me know what you think of me, and I will let you know what I think of you. Let's have a frank exchange of views, all right? Let's let's do that. So that's actually very interesting to me, what you're saying right here, because you're you're connecting a kind of ethos of freedom or libertarianism to actually an atmosphere of openness. You're saying that when we protect people's liberty to say what they want, we actually expose where everybody's at, and then there will be a rational assessment by citizens, oh, we know who you are now, because we've actually allowed you to say what you are. And we can then actually respond to you, deal with you, take steps with you. Would that be accurate? I think so. I, I think so. Early pioneers of the gay rights movement frequently faced censorship. They wanted to send publications through the U.S. mail that were considered obscene because they talked, frankly, about sex between two men or two women. So they were the targets of that. And the fact people who are, are anti-gay are the targets now, well, it doesn't make me happy when the shoe's on the other foot. We ought to know who these people are. We ought to identify just what they're thinking. And we ought to answer it. If if we can, we should, rather than trying to silence them. When you, when you silence someone, you make it seem like you don't really have any arguments against them. There's a, a saying that when Zeus reaches for his thunderbolts, you know that he's lost because he doesn't have any good arguments to make against you. He's just going to beat you. It was the great modern philosopher Michael Corleone who tells us in The Godfather Part 2 that his father taught him, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And there's a spirit of that in Jason Kuznicki's final remarks. Instead of suppressing the noxious speech of others, it might be best to allow it to be brought to light the better to know with whom we are dealing and what we can expect. For libertarians, nothing good comes from suppression or monitoring, even if such liberties are exploited by some very unfriendly people. But that is the price that must be paid for autonomy to be more than a slogan, and for libertarians, the greatest irony of all may be that the government, which is purportedly charged with safeguarding our freedoms, may be the institution that needs to be guarded against most of all. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this has been What Would You Do? If you'd like to check out previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe for free to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org. Check us out as well on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe, and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.